0: episode number 177 uh, with Eagle's Catch on Justin the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Justin Bizarro, and you can find the podcast At Justin Bizarro, or excuse me, at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs on Facebook and Instagram as well. Joe, how are you? Episode number three with you. How are you doing today? I'm great, and I'm
1: glad to be back in Milledgeville, Georgia. I feel like it's is like a second home to me now. I would come back anytime you invited me.
0: Yeah, awesome. So I'm. I guess what's been going on? I mean, it's been a summer now. I think since the last time you were here. So Mm -hmm. how's the ventures going? I mean, how's Iowa really and. Yeah. so let's talk about fishing
1: yeah as you look at the full kind of uh, farming economy in Iowa right now you know a lot of grain farming is is going to be doing well here this year and into next year and so it's a kind of a it's it's been a great uh, environment for, for I'd say the whole community and and uh, and then on the fish farming side you know we've we had a nice uh, bait fish market which was a nice shot in the arm here that's a seasonal market for us people that'll put tilapia Uh, so again we raise tilapia all indoors uh, Mm -hmm. in iowa and we ship across the country and we found uh, this nice market in the springtime that they take really small fish and they put them in their ponds because it helps uh, clean their ponds but then uh, they're they it's an annual market because a lot of times it's too cold for those uh, tilapia to survive through the wintertime and uh, and they actually produce their babies, and largemouth bass like to eat uh, the tilapia, and they get really big trophy fish. Uh, so that's been a fun market for us to kind of develop here, right, so, especially in the last year, but yeah.
0: So the tilapia goes in cleans things up?
1: Yep, they eat the grass and, and algae in a pond. Really? And they'll produce little babies, and largemouth bass will go and, and eat the babies, and they make really big trophy fish.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting. So. I mean, in up in Iowa, you have mm-hmm. cold water. So, in where there's not cold water, the fish wouldn't die. Then is that? General? Yeah, over the winter time. Yeah, yeah. They, they do all right in
1: the uh, in the in the spring and summer, um, or probably in the later summer months uh, as the water temperatures rise a little bit. Yeah. But it's it's been fun, and and uh, you know I I grew up. Uh, I never was much into fishing myself, but you know I had a lot of family that was into it, and and by osmosis I I got I grew an appreciation for it, uh-huh. and uh, so it's cool to see that kind of come full circle and and you know have that relationship with the uh, with the folks that are more
0: into fishing and less on fish farming because it's just it's so different. Oh yeah, absolutely. One's sport and relaxing almost, and the other one's a food <laughs> source, right, or a food yeah. source for. Um, big mouth bass i guess in this case yeah and for us
1: it's uh you know a lot of times you can pull your hair out so it's not maybe not quite as relaxing as as uh as fishing itself
0: yeah and so i mean let's talk about i mean i think we've talked about fishing on the podcast you're mm-hmm. an iowa farmer to begin with and in their seasonalities to farming mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. literally and so i mean as you're integrating fish fish farming on farms i mean let's Go back to that i mean what does the summer look like in iowa what it, and and how does a fish farm on the farm help contribute to maybe that seasonality and all that while we're on the topic because i think we sort of touched upon it but we didn't really dive into it
1: yeah traditional farming is uh so crop uh, in in iowa we grow a lot of commoditized agriculture products that uh, are very much on a year cycle. So in the spring, it's a mad rush out to the field to get your crop into the ground and uh, to get planted, get uh, everything tilled and, and fertilized. And that can happen uh, at the end of the previous year or at the beginning of this of the, the, the year that you're in. And it's a mad, mad rush. And then there's a kind of a lull a little bit. Then people go out back out for spraying in June and July. And uh, I have agronomist friends or they're uh, plant scientists that they're going to probably yell at me if I get any of these facts wrong. Um, But then uh, and then in the harvest time uh, in October and even into November, you know, it's a mad rush to get the crop out. And, you know, you're watching everything from the moisture and the plants to you know, uh, to yield percentages and based on, and throughout the year you're worried about rain and you're marketing grain.
0: Yeah. And
1: then during the winter time, they spend most of the winter, you know, getting the equipment and everything cleaned up and ready for the next year. And so, uh, you know, we know some farmers that they always take a nice long vacation during the winter time. And, uh, but it's it's very much on a, on a year cycle, at least within grain farming. And then, you know, going back to, you know, the 1980s, there was this big, uh, event it was the impetus for raising hogs indoors that they found hey We can provide a more stable environment for pigs where the pigs have less stress on them They're going to produce better and they're going to be able to produce year-round and so that was the you know kind of the impetus for this huge innovation in hog production and hog contract growing uh, that uh, really started in the 1980s. And uh, and that's also happened in, in chicken farming as well as uh, a lot of other animals that kind of provided that sort of year round uh, job for for different folks. And then, uh, and now fast forward to 2020, we're 2021, you know, we've built our first fish farm uh, in Ellsworth, Iowa. And, and one of the things, one of our goals is actually to provide another on-farm revenue stream for family farmers you know I grew up in a really small town and you know over the last 50 years we've seen you know population decline in rural areas we've seen them you know continue to dilapidate the cost of living has gone up so you know it's harder to uh, have a uh, a full-time job that can sustain a full family uh, out in a rural area unless you're you know doing some sort of business and. A lot of people in our communities do multiple things, not just farming. They do something else, or they uh, even the people that support those industries. And so, you know, with that sort of feeling that I come, that's where I come from, and I have a lot of pride for those communities. That we want to be able to give the opportunity to family farmers to grow farm income, maybe bring home that next generation, and to provide more economic opportunities in rural towns. You know, that was a big part of, you know, what I wanted to accomplish in starting this venture. And so uh, with uh, doing fish farming on family farms, it's another year round activity. Uh, It's a job where a homemaker, so it doesn't necessarily need to be a full time job, but maybe someone that's under employed, that they're going to be able to add more production and economic Mm -hmm. opportunity for uh, and the, it's not so physical that a homemaker or a uh, can do the work or someone that is uh, maybe not the physical, you know, number one uh, heavy lifter in the family that can that yeah. can do the work. And so with us, a really great opportunity to make use of the people that are already there and give those economic opportunities that are year round that they are. Producing fish on a consistent basis throughout the year, so I think that's something that's going to be really special for those people and
0: and for uh, for their families. Now I want to touch on two things. One is is that sort of side income, that additional income that's mm-hmm. possible. And I think, um, based in the world we live in, and sort of, and we all know in the United States, inflation isn't mm-hmm. doesn't count food. Mm-hmm. So you know that's kind of this weird thing that happens within there. But in as things have have gone the ways they have in rural America. People are having to not only run a farm, they're having to value add their items, they're having to think more entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. and they're having to quote unquote uh, you would call them side hustles if they were in a suburban environment or urban environment. But the fact that matters, you're on a farm, it's not a side hustle, it's all part of the same hustle mm-hmm. of survival. And I think that what we're going to see is more and more of what you're talking about. Hey, I'm a wife at home, I have kids, but I've got this amount of hours in the morning, I've got this amount of hours during the day while the kids are at school, and I've got this amount of hours while they're doing homework, I can have a side hustle that's fishing, for example, that's feeding them, that's whatever, you know, sort of cyclical, Mm -hmm. um, more routine versus having to go out and run a combine, Mm -hmm. per se, Um, but it adds into, or complements maybe if in this case i'll go to a stereotype and i'll say the woman's at home being the homemaker and the man's out in the field being the farmer but if she can complement what he's already doing on the field by adding more revenue more volume more poundage of food product to their saleability through the fishing and partnerships like you guys there's that and then we don't even talk about what all the water waste and stuff from the fish in terms of the fertilizer and so i think that that's an important part is that we realize that what the world looks like now, and our ability as entrepreneurs, whether it's food or not, to just stick with one thing, it, mm-hmm. it becomes hard. And yeah. even that you just said, you're a, you're a fish farmer, but you've now have two ways that you fish. One is for the feeder fish, and one's for mm-hmm. the consumption of fish. Yeah. Or and when I say feeder fish, meaning going into the pond yep. that ultimately get consumed indirectly. Yeah.
1: You know, I think what's uh, one, a really cool thing to me is. Um, well, there's kind of two topics here. Number one, you know, the term side hustle uh, was, I think, something that folks in farming have done forever. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we're not just a corn farmer. We're not just a soybean farmer, or a hog farmer, or a chicken farmer. You know, the folks that survived the 1980s uh, farm crisis. Uh, my my mom was one of those. My my grandpa passed away in 1981 and my mom took over the family farm and uh, the 1983 farm crisis hit. So at that time, uh, uh, the uh, Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, uh, and the Reagan administration decided to start raising interest rates yep. to combat uh, rampant inflation. And uh, the farming community had, uh, was really at a huge exposure risk because the farming community ran on a lot of debt. Both on operating notes, uh, land notes, so on and so forth. And so it really kind of caught the ag community with its pants down, so to speak. Um, And it was a really, really difficult time because interest rates had gone up, you know, in some cases, you know, 18, 20%. And so the folks that survived the 1980s farm crisis were people that, you know, number one, had an appropriate level of debt, but it's also people that were well diversified. Across, you know, maybe corn, soybeans, uh, hogs, chickens, uh, cattle, so on so forth, and these are products that complement each other, right? So if you've got hogs, you know, you're feeding the corn that uh, you know you yeah. grew out in your field, and then you're using the hog manure then to fertilize the fields. Mm. Um, so there's this, you know, it's not just all inputs and outputs. Um, but much like we think about our portfolio and, our st- and the stocks that we invest in, that's how we think about the things that we grow and the things that we do in Iowa, that we wanna be diversified, have multiple revenue streams and everything else. And I think this, so, and then going to the second point, um, I think what's been really, really interesting, especially in the last five to 10 years, is there is an, an increasing amount of women farmers so, the percentage of farmers has historically been low because it is something that has a, that whole industry, it very much fo- has followed a very traditional sense of familial lines um, where things are, you know, man's work or there's women's work. But there's a growing and growing number of uh, farmers that are, or a higher and higher percentage of farmers are now women yeah and my mom was one of those first to 1981 and it was a very big struggle for her and i think uh so one of the other um gals that i work with lisa zeisman she's she's incredible she's got uh, her and her husband zach have uh five kids under the age of 12 and uh (laughs) and she uh you know, and she is running like crazy. I mean, she is uh, getting a lot of stuff done and, and she's essential for our business that our business really much relies upon her. But prior uh, f- to us working together, you know, she was also raising hogs. Yeah. You know, she had a great career and in, in human resources in uh, the big city in Des Moines. But then she was also raising hogs, uh, you know, when uh, <laughs> when she came back to the family farm with her husband and. And uh, so it's really cool to see that, you know, interpersonal development, but also the demographic development that is, uh, you know, kind of leading to to a more equal playing field uh, between uh, the the groups there.
0: Yeah. And I'm seeing that as well. I'm seeing a lot more of the generations that are coming back where the sons aren't the ones actually coming back to the farms. It's the Mm -hmm. daughters and resurrecting them when they have the right marketing attitude and diversified mind to to look at it differently and Mm -hmm. the risk tolerance um i think is the other part um that it's you know for for a woman to run the farm it is atypical Mm -hmm. but i think what we're seeing is over generations that it is becoming part of what it is and especially the generation that's coming up um a lot of the daughters are coming back to run the farms Mm -hmm. and being involved. And I think what we're also seeing is a lot of families are now staying on the farms and the quote-unquote we'll call side hustles, which is store in normal farming, where we're starting to realize that you need to explore that with the kids and with the Mm -hmm. family members, whether one's great at hogs and one's great at corn Mm -hmm. or some of the farms that we're seeing that are really diversifying and getting into things like sugar cane or whatever, they're just finding – someone in the family that's grown up now that takes interest in something and it helps diversify what I'll call the legacy of the farm. Yeah. Um, because it is what's building on the more diversified you're doing, even with the fish or with other products or with family, um, the less exposure you have, but also the more experience you get overall, I think. Um, yeah. And so while it's an economic problem, I, I feel, I also feel that it's, um, it just makes sense one because it encourages hardship Mm -hmm. um, in a family farm um, by doing something different, but the hardship is short-term for a long-term goal. And um, yeah, there's a, you know,
1: the other, I'd say challenge ahead of, you know, these rural areas and, and family farms is, you know, to be able to be competitive, you have to grow within commoditized agriculture and, and, A lot of cases, the unfortunate reality is land, you know, for if you want to purchase more land, it doesn't come available until someone dies in the community and you have to wait for that sort of event to be able to have the opportunity to grow your your, farm. farm. Uh, So the the turnover in and the generational turnover is, is a long process. And um, that's also why, you know, we're passionate about providing more opportunities, because as you look at the other commodities, so corn and soybeans is limited to the acres, you know, we're not getting any more acres. Yeah. Uh, in fact, as cities grow and, you know, things develop, you know, acres are actually shrinking. And uh, but then that's also. Yeah. Um, so we have to look at all right animal proteins. How do we add value to grain? So they add value to grain with you know, all of the other animal protein products. Also in Ames, Iowa, there's a, you know, a major pasta manufacturer um, that, you know, more of these companies are locating closer and closer to that feedstuff uh, to reduce uh, transportation yeah. costs and everything else.
0: Economic, I mean, uh, environmental footprint.
1: So and and environmental and so. footprints. That's a lot of uh, kind of our thesis on fish farming too, is locate close to the feedstuffs. Um, and uh, so the farmers are looking, where can I else can I invest money? Where else can I grow farm income? Yeah. Well, hog farming now has become satiated because there's, uh, you know, there's limited, I'd say, opportunity for new operators because it's uh, something that's so saturated that, uh, you know, the operators, economic opportunity is not as good as if you would have gotten involved in the 90s or the 2000s Yeah, absolutely and uh and so you know they're looking for other opportunities so chicken farming a similar case where you know the elasticity of demand is almost one to one um you know that you'll see that uh you know price and quantities Mm -hmm. uh will tend to be highly correlated and uh and so we're also looking at all right we can add now an economic opportunity that has a ton of macroeconomic opportunity, and where we're offsetting, you know, imported yeah. product, and so I think it's something that accomplishes a lot of goals, uh, both on a diversified production, uh, growing farm income. It's a diversified not only in product form but geographical distribution because we're offsetting now. These other commodities are dependent on. Uh, imports and uh, exports um, to to other company yeah. countries to be successful and to be profitable now we've now we're an import dominated market here in the United States in uh, the largest consumer market in in the world and we're saying we just want to supply our neighbors with a yeah. product that they're already buying so it's a geographical distribution diversification as well and so it's uh, I think it's something that's definitely striking a chord among a lot of people and they're really excited about the opportunity to, uh, to grow farm income and to do something more that continues the heritage. And uh, I think one of the coolest things that I've seen in my lifetime is at the Iowa State Fair, we have a Century uh, Farm Award presentation. And these are farms that have now been in a family for over a hundred years. Oh, and so they had do this every year we've got some that are now at 150 years and it's it's if you ever get a chance it is live streamed so i hope people i encourage people to uh yeah to look that up and that's actually going to be next week um so i hope uh hope every, uh, maybe we can oh drop that's the pretty link, cool yeah uh, to that award ceremony um because i'm a fifth generation iowa farmer you people don't buy their way into farming yeah no you're, kidding you're, not you're, anymore you're born into it and yeah. it's a heritage thing it's something that you carry and and something that you want to do, not just for yourself and your family, but for your kids and their family yeah. and going forward. So it's something that we take great pride in. We wanna to add to that uh, community. And we want to add to that, envir- that uh, I'd say familial environment um, and uh, the opportunities in, in rural Iowa.
0: I think that the other part of it is is the leadership that farming does within the families that we're talking about also in the diversification and understanding of more than one thing or or how it's going to impact and i think that, that also goes back to these legacies as we're calling you know or these legends or these hundred year plus businesses centuries um that our farm it's the tribal knowledge that's also passed down in farming um, it's essential farming is one of those things there's probably a lot of unspoken things that aren't written down mm-hmm. but there's no other way to do it it's just passed down a generation to generation and I know as a business at food service partners we're 22 years old and while we have loyal people that have been around 22 plus years work for my dad even longer than the business the problem now is getting that knowledge down to the next generations in a way that's not in a written format mm-hmm. you know and I think Farming is a lot like great cultures around the world, in that it needs to be preserved and it needs to be passed down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone talks about the elders and and old and old civilizations, but there is a truth to that, mm-hmm. especially with things like farming or things where um, that they should be passed down. I even think leadership in a family is probably we don't pass it down the generations enough, especially in the United States. Mm-hmm. But farming is something where I think you learn that tradition you have that core it's um the tribal knowledge is passed down there's generational impact and learning Mm -hmm. and growth meaning like okay well we may have started as corn but now we're corn soybeans pigs um chickens whatever sugarcane i don't know but it's but the point being is that Farming works because you can compound it on generations. Mm-hmm. And when we realize just from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I'm going to go on a tangent, that as entrepreneurs that we also the ventures that we build or the lives we build are the same way in our families. And if we really think about that, we're compounding legacy, mm-hmm. you know, in knowledge downward stream, not only for ourselves, but the people that work for us potentially um, or for our family it's, it's that exactly. And that's why the farming, we don't realize what an essential part it is of the world. Um, And in an industrialization world where we've industrialized over the last 200 years plus, um, we've lost track of what that legacy looks like in terms of the human experience in terms of the bonding and the leadership, the entrepreneurial spirit. Um, Because we can we go to school school functions but most of school is to help us function in society right and have the skills necessary to excel or or do well or or have to take advantage of the opportunities i okay. should probably put it whether or not those opportunities are equal or not we can talk about it some other time yeah but well, it's um i just slip in a quick quote that yeah. i
1: loved uh the uh united states secretary of agriculture tom vilsack uh, he actually used to be the governor of Iowa. He was the secretary of ag under the Obama administration. Now the Biden administration, There you go. Um, he, uh, he famously said, and I, I love this quote, you know, uh, less than 1% of uh, the population here are farmers. Yeah. But the reason why everyone else, they're not farmers is because of farmers. So if you didn't have what our industry is today, yeah. you would have to be a farmer yourself. And uh, I, sorry, I, so I just wanted to add no, that. No, you're but, 100% um, right. Uh, and I
0: think we often take it for granted. Yeah. Because we, and, you know, we can talk about, oh, how many pens my factory produced out of the pen factory. But you can produce pens every day. When it's farming, we're talking cyclical years. I mean, so if I live 100 years i'm lucky to have a hundred years worth of crops if i had all 100 years i mean potentially and it only happens once a year if it's Mm -hmm. like corn or whatever which is also what's great about fish is because you don't have that feeling like it's a season Mm -hmm. necessarily you can keep producing it but my point more being is because there's that starting that that waiting that stopping it puts things slow enough in farming where you learn a lot during the process and you every year you have to reassess what can I learn and do it better next year because it is cyclical. Yeah. And I think if we look at projects as entrepreneurs and businesses that exact same way, which is why I love having you on the podcast because solutions driven from farm-based ideas and the way we reflect, go back, try to do it better next season, fix the equipment, the way things are done and tracking farming, the way the margins are done and the cost accounting. I mean, it's essential. And no one looks at farming as a business. For what reason, I don't know, but they're probably the best run businesses and financially uh, tracking business. I wouldn't say, you know, they're responsible, all of them, but I do say that farming and tracking money is pretty essential. You know, I think one of the
1: untold success stories that has been over the last 50 years is how we've taken the carbon footprint. And this is, by the way, uh, uh, speaks to the modernization of agriculture. So, you know, folks that have aversion to certain ways of doing things, the untold good story is that we've decreased the carbon footprint of a pound of meat, of a gallon of milk, of, you know, uh, an egg product, threefold. Yeah and that comes with modernization that comes with taking a scientific approach to agricultural production yeah if we did farming now the same way we did in the 1950s not only could we not feed our people yeah but we also would have a much much bigger impact on our environment Yeah. and so you know i think that's uh, something that's really cool something that's also taken place even since the early '90s, is how we've uh, world hunger is plummeting, and it come that again comes from modernization yeah. because the big task that is set in front of us as agriculturists is we have a growing population that's going to double in size by uh, it's going to reach uh, 10 billion people uh, by 2050. We have to double agricultural output, double. Yep. with less land, less water, and less inputs. Yeah. And that comes with you know, innovative uh, ideas and taking a scientific approach of how do we increase the nutritional uh, product that we're creating uh, on, a, on a, a volume basis uh, to feed a, a growing population. Mm-hmm. The alternative to that is if there's a technology that uh, we decide is not something that we want to implement, we are making a conscious decision to say, if we're not comfortable with this technology that at some point we have to make the conscious decision to let people starve based on our uh, decision factors on what technologies we input. And so, you know, we, we take a, uh, you know, we wanna be responsible to the environment. Absolutely, we want to feed people a nutritious product that's safe and sustainable, absolutely. And that is our, but we really need to figure out how do we increase our product uh, productivity so that way we can continue to feed people with this growing population.
0: Yeah, and I wanna, you, I, there's a couple points. One is um, that I wanna emphasize on is to latch on to the legacy of the farmers and the mm-hmm. generations learning from each other, one is, in farming naturally, you want the land to be okay. And if you're a legacy farmer, meaning you're mm-hmm. building for generations, you're not you're going to take care of your land. So when yeah, everyone understand. starts having these environmental conversations in the farmers, it goes back to the entrepreneur conversation, in right. my opinion, or the farming family itself. Well, mm-hmm. it's not farming in general. It goes back to like well, it's not the gun. Mm-hmm. It's the person using it. Right. So it's great. It's not the farm It's not the farm itself. It's the farmers. And mm-hmm. how do we get them to be more conscious? Or how do, do we get them to see the legacy or the leadership? Because they are going to pass it down to generations. And the ones who get it right and make big improvements and, and do things and get into the fish, you know, they're willing to take the risk. But it takes time and it takes Mm-hmm. You know, generations of comfortability because originally the, we're good at corn, we should stick to corn. That was a mindset in business and in farming. Yeah.
1: You know, to that point, I think, you know, there's a couple of pieces of property that's been in my family. Well, not just our immediate farm itself, but uh, a number of, or homestead. There's also a number of pieces of property where we raise uh, corn and soybeans that our family has owned. In those cases like over 100 years right Yeah. and you don't our goal is not to just rape that ground for whatever it's worth you know we are investing in that ground yeah. to for the soil health we don't want you know fertilizer to be running off because that affects our water supply you know so we're being selfish in the fact that we want clean water for ourselves and for our neighbors and so we really uh, we invested that ground and we want to hand that ground piece of property to the next generation in a really quality way. Yeah. Um, so, you know, farmers are environmentalists as well. And I think that's a, another untold story about how much we really do care about the environment that we live every day
0: in. And so that's something that we take very, very seriously. Yeah. And I think sometimes it gets clouded because. We hear a lot of opinions, and different farmers have different opinions, and I think we get confused because um, your solution to diversify in the way you raise any animals in Iowa is going to be mm-hmm. different than the way that's going to be output for Georgia. I mean, you could talk outdoors, we could talk Prop Twelve in California related mm-hmm. to pigs, we could talk a thousand different ways, but in order for all of it to work, there's some hybrid system, you know that doesn't look like it makes sense to anyone, but you're everyone's trying to do the best they can in their region. And you know, I think we think there's one solution to all of it, or one pig, or one species, or one plant-based protein that's gonna do everything for us. But the reality is, is it's still the harder path is still the diverse path, but it's still the longer term easiest path because mm-hmm. it, it it keeps away the stress of money. It keeps mm-hmm. away the stress of security for the farm and if we're talking about even greater a national security if you're a country because regardless of we're not at war you still have to feed your own population absolutely and so food this security is, where is national security
1: yeah, by the way and yeah. i think that's one of the things that probably goes um you know i'd, I'd call myself a, a, a capitalist in a lot of ways with the exception of uh, I'd say, within food and food policy, yeah. because I think every country should have its own base of agricultural production that is vibrant, that could sustain its own people in, the in I'd say, those low-probability but high-impact uh, events, because I think that's uh, very important for us to continue to sustain that across
0: the world. And I agree with you, and I think oil, we talk about oil being an essential thing. Obviously, it runs tractors and stuff, but we're becoming looking at more alternative energies. Mm-hmm. So, okay, the world stops having oil. Okay, we have to maybe go back to manual labor or figuring out alternative source. We can still mm-hmm. farm. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is if we don't farm, we don't have food. And yep. if we don't sustain it properly in every country mm-hmm. um, and try to figure out how to sustain ourselves always... Yes, there'll be trading. There's going to be commodities. You can't grow something in Iowa that probably grows in India, for example. I don't know, but we'll see indoors. Yeah. I think we're going to see a lot of change there. But you're going to see trading go on. But the thing is, is every nation or any person that's ever come to power or tried to better their country, that first mm-hmm. thing they go after is feeding a population. Yep. Why? Because it's the hardest thing to do. It's also the thing everyone sees, especially in third world countries. Yeah, And so, you know... Hunger is one thing, feeding them and getting them nutritional food, which I think is important. And then to your point is that it was that compounding of generations of constantly being more efficient, effective, useful with the environments that has allowed us to actually feed the population, where on paper... If you were a mathematician or someone, it would have looked like we were going to starve as a uh, nation. I would, but what, I would
1: point, point out someone, and I suggest anyone listening uh, to look up uh, a man by the name of Norman Borlaug. Are you familiar with that name, The Justin? name's familiar, yes. Yeah, so original uh, from Iowa. Yeah. So I'm going to toot uh, the state of Iowa. Now, obviously, he did a lot of work. Uh, he did his uh, master's, I believe, at Kansas State as well. Um, he was, uh, considered the father of the green revolution yeah. and his research on drought resistant wheat strains, uh, is credited with launching this whole green revolution. He is credited to having saved over a billion lives there, from yeah. hunger. So he did that research yeah. in Mexico and India, primarily, uh, it was also the impetus for the creation of the world food prize. Which is uh, the uh, food equivalent of the, nor- uh, yeah, the Nobel, Nobel Peace Prize? Prize he yeah. also won the Nobel Peace Prize, um, but uh, and they have the World Food Prize event uh, in Des Moines, Iowa, every year. It's it's an absolute incredible event. There's also a youth institute where uh, young people in in middle school and high schools are, you know doing projects to figure out how they can increase food security and family income in, in rural, in communities across the world that don't have the same access that we are so lucky to have here in the United States. And so, um, that's something I think is, is really cool. I really highly recommend anyone listening to look up Norman Borlaug and the world food prize. Um, he actually has his own statue in the United States Capitol as well. Um, and uh, just an incredible uh, person that I consider uh, one of my heroes yeah. um, and, uh, and and really look up to what he was able to accomplish in his lifetime in solving world hunger. And
0: I think one of the things I like about all of it is like we, we can constantly battle this. We just have to be smart about it. And it's really about layering what the things are. We're going to eat a less diversified protein palette than we are vegetables and fruit there's way more vegetables and fruit than there are proteins unless we break down cows by the million of species yeah. you know I don't know if there's a million species but I'm using it as an example in that there's probably different nutrition that's gained from it and that nutrition is f- we're learning is from pushes like we're talking about which mm-hmm. come from layers of education which becomes exporting knowledge like we're talking about which becomes Iowa becomes one of those main points that we're seeing in the world of where this knowledge and these families have been around long enough Mm -hmm. um, in a free market society where they're allowed to continue to own their land, which I want to make sure is an important part of this thing. Farmers in the United States, they own their land, they are able to pass it down to generations. Yes, there's inheritance taxes. But that being said, because the land's owned and there is ownership in a free market, it allows for that entrepreneurship Absolutely. and for that, gener- not every farmer Theory of the great. commons, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, theory of the
1: commons, which was uh, a uh, something that happened in, uh, I believe, Ireland. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get these details wrong. You're so cl- I'm pretty sure you right someone, Someone's going to correct me on this and, uh, Britain, and I'm going to be, very, Ireland, gonna be very happy about that. Um, But uh, they had a common area where people could use for farming. And um, after a handful of years, it was desolate because no one was investing in soil health. No one was taking the necessary steps that you should take uh, when you own your own piece of ground. And it wasn't until they privatized ground uh, and land ownership that that whole trend reversed. And so, um, yeah, definitely land ownership is an essential part of environmentalism and as, as well as
0: um, uh, healthy and responsible production. Yeah. Which really goes to what we're talking about in, you know, the food prize and the things like that. They're all a knowledge base. Mm-hmm. And, and while I can't buy more land in Iowa to grow my farm, we're seeing some farmers that are willing to go t- to other countries to grow their products or diversify mm-hmm. to get year-round So that's been kind of interesting because we have farmers becoming international businessmen, especially over the last 20 to 30 years and having farms in different countries, if they couldn't grow. But the other thing that I'm seeing is that if if they're growing the farms, we have a lot of entrepreneurs that are getting more into the drones, for example, Mm -hmm. on the farms. Maybe I'm not the horticologist, for lack of a better term, I won't. But my brother is the drone guy and he's making sure mapping the fields all day and doing the data. So we're seeing these jobs and where the farms are actually becoming businesses as well. When I talk about marketing and advertising, we're seeing that as well. And um, that knowledge, I think, is so important because it's so hands on from the day you're born on a farm. Absolutely. And so how do you know, I guess that's the essential part, right? I think for human beings, uh, why were we farmers and fishermen? If we go all the way back, it's because the patience that were required Um, And in that patience and that lack of short term gratification, I think we were able to build legacies over generations Mm -hmm. and also have the time necessary, the forced time to pause and re-look at it every year Mm -hmm. to make our farms better, more environmental, do stuff. And now have there been failures? Of course, always. There's going to be farmers or a next generation that may take over that does it. Absolutely. One of
1: of my best friends, um, I'm going to shout out to... uh, uh, to lance who's an agronomist uh in iowa and so he's a plant scientist there you go and it's a word uh, i was looking for yeah yeah agronomist um so it's a plant scientist and yeah. so he uh, um i always get love to get his uh agronomy updates you know they go out and they you know count the number of plants per acre they um you know they're counting they're looking at all parts of that leaf and now, I know Lance is going to have words with me because I'm going to get a lot of this wrong, um, but, uh, you know, he's someone that, you know, I think that whole science-based approach to agriculture, to farming is, uh, I think, inherent and it's actually cultural is what yeah. I've come to find, especially in the last 50 years of, uh, of agricultural production. And it was before that too, but it's, uh, you know, this business-based approach you know um, are, is is how we, that we've approached farming for for generations and it's how you know we continue and we have innovated and if someone farms the same way that their parents did they will be obsolete they have mm-hmm. to continually develop and innovate and uh, grow with their community and with their neighbors uh, to stay relevant and and, uh, and highly productive in accomplishing the goals
0: of what is set of in front of United States agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I agree. And I think that as Americans, because um, we're in America right now, and what we're seeing in our crisis in agriculture, which is part of it and COVID and everything else is, and I bet there's other countries out there mm-hmm. that are having this happen, is it sort of We've seen a bait and switch a little bit and the world, and if anyone knows a communist playbook, it's go after long-term legacies economically. Yep. And so that's what we're seeing, and the way our economy's set up in the United States, as many other countries, and farming's not tied to a lot of our actual mm-hmm. financial markets in the same way and stuff like that. It's allowed people to come in and really take over our stuff. So now we just talked about this. So I'm going to talk about now we have a community. We have mm-hmm businesses are foreign governments owning land okay so one is we talked about american farmers like i'll give you an example there's one in georgia they have a farm in peru and then they have a farm in somewhere in europe oh wow and so as well as i believe they're building one down towards in southern sub-saharan africa
1: in in our
0: area a lot of our
1: agriculture in iowa translates really well to brazil and so you've seen a lot of our ag community develop in brazil but yeah. a lot of the develop uh, foreign development has really been held back by political stability exactly in third world countries so it's like yes the ground's great yes we'd love to develop there yes we'd like to invest dollars in third world countries but the political instability makes it very difficult to make investments or to, to grow. Yep.
0: And so if you're a country that wants to invest yeah. in agriculture and you want a stable agricultural economy, we, you're we going can, right after we can the United States. We can come to town
1: and we can <laughs> we can do a lot for humanitarian development <laughs> yeah. and everything else. You know, we uh, you know, there's uh, Mark Cuban said, you know, it's it's a lot. There's much more you can do for a, a society by investing in them than just giving them money. Exactly. And uh, it's the whole teach a man to fish rather than give a yeah. man a fish approach. Yeah. And uh, and so political stability is, is so essential for, uh, for
0: that to happen. And I think that that's what I, you know, I'm going to take a step back for a second then I'll jump in for, but in my experience I probably over 22 years, thousands of employees mm-hmm. and different entrepreneur ventures graduate school internships so on and so forth you have a lot of people but interestingly there's a lot there's no matter where it is internationally there's three groups of people that always stand out the employees that lead and and most of them outgrow food service partners because Mm -hmm. that's just the way they are but they start off on a farm they're a farmer they grew up in an entrepreneurial family or they grew up in a family whether two parents or one parent doesn't matter that sort of approach life as a legacy and building foundationally on to things and every day is building on the next day and so on and so forth and i think that that's true internationally too regardless of religions or ethnicities or, or some of the other boundaries we put up as humans to dislike each other yeah um or or um or things that we like as humans that other people dislike because they like something different is probably more of a better description or an intolerance or lack of exposure. But that being said, is the group of people that we're talking about across the world that will actually make a difference is we've got to encourage these farms, Mm -hmm. one, because that entrepreneurism spills out to else in the world. And while the rest of the world, if I'm a 20 year old kid and I didn't grow up on a farm, maybe I'm slightly at a disadvantage because right. I did it. It doesn't mean I can't learn it from the farmers or or yeah. from it. Um, I think it's important that we encourage this sort of generational thing of being entrepreneurs and being farmers and and whatever and the tolerance. The other thing that I think for stuff like uh, Eagles Catch is, is around the world we now have to expect that we're gonna be able to take these technologies and a company like yours is gonna go help farmers around the world, mm-hmm. you know, and that the solution to fishing problems or national security in a lot of these places are exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, and so I think that part of the reason I love talking with you, Joe, is just this deeper understanding and this deeper level of what food actually means for mm-hmm. humans Yes, we eat it every day. It's the most important thing. It's the craziest thing to me. The lack of emphasis we put Mm -hmm. on it, yet it's essential to our living. Uh, We actually talk about water more than we talk about food, which both are essential, obviously. But food is pretty important. And you know, we talk about a lot about how clean our water is, but Mm -hmm. we never apply the same cleanliness to food. Mm -hmm. You know, we're very quick to um, not to take international or imported food um and hurt the national farmers um and it's not apples to apples the quality is not the same the way the animals aren't raised is the same the way the things that are fed that are now compounding into the human body aren't the same so i think you know part of it is if if everyone outside of the farmer and outside of the entrepreneur and 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 this and their leaders and we've and plenty of people have no farming experience and know whatever and become entrepreneurs. I don't think that that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying that there's a natural take initiative mentality yeah. that tends to be there. Um, yeah. And, you
1: know, here in the United States, we're, we're very fortunate that we have the safest and the most affordable food supply in the world. Yeah, And we're very, very fortunate with that. I'd say the exception to that rule in the United States is seafood. Yeah, and that's absolutely. part of you know what we're hoping to, to help solve here in the United States. So to put this in perspective, we import about uh, a little over 90% of all the seafood in the United States. In fact, over three quarters of all the seafood in the United States just comes from China. And uh, in fish is the last animal protein product that number one is uh, predominantly wild caught, um, but it's also uh, the last one that's inspected by FDA and not USDA. USDA they know what they're doing; they're very very good at inspections. Uh, FDA for you know no malcontent or anything else, or it's just purely lack of resources and attention. Yeah. Uh, they only inspect about 1.4 percent of all the seafood, and since that's all seafood is the only major. Uh, food group that's imported or predominantly imported i think that leaves a wide gap in food safety yeah uh here in the united states and again that's part of the reason why we're focusing on uh fish production uh here uh you know in for well and a handful of more reasons um but that's i think number one provides us market opportunities uh, for our company, but uh, also I think is a big opportunity for American consumers and American families that are looking for that f- uh, safe, fresh, and sustainable food supply uh, while also doing some good by engaging rural communities uh, in a way that is the
0: most carbon neutral and water neutral form of animal yeah. protein. And I think that it's important because we were there's a marketing craze of this wild caught mm-hmm. fish. And while In theory, it is correct. It's correct in the theory without 8 billion people on the earth. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like um, there's a lot of things that are correct in theory, but not in reality. And when we look at it, it's just one, it's not sustainable. I don't care how many fish you put back in the sea. Two. um, I'll I'll say that in large part, that is true. Uh, There is
1: some some caveats to that of sustainable fisheries and folks that are doing it really well. You know I love wild caught salmon, um, but as you look at, you know, a lot of the other products that are in the marketplace that are wild caught or wild capture, um, you know the the oceans continue to get polluted, and so the environment that they're being grown in is continuing to degrade. The uh, and then with the overfishing, so wild caught capture flatlined in the early '90s. All growth in seafood consumption has come and will come from aquaculture production yeah. so whether you prefer wild caught or not fact of the matter is is it's, it's going to be coming from aquaculture because yeah. just ecologically it's impossible to continue to do it the way that we have and
0: it would be it's the equivalent of sending the cowboys out every day yeah. to actually physically lasso each cow you're yeah. going to slaughter yeah. versus mass producing yeah. them right now and
1: feeding it's them. the last food group that is predominantly wild, wild capture rather than grown. Yeah. And uh, not only that 93% of all wild capture is either maximally sustainably fished or overfished. Yeah. And so the fact of the matter is is aquaculture not only has to account for all the growth in seafood consumption, but it's now having to start make up ground as wild capture is on the decline. And you know that those people are doing the best that they can in the wild capture. And I don't believe that those uh, people that are um, overfishing, there's a massive problem of illegal and unregulated fishing. I don't believe that's conducted by United States fishermen. It's, it's a lot of the, yeah. I'd say, Eastern Asian uh, countries that are uh, conducting that around the world. And uh, and so that's one thing that I always encourage people to look at the country of origin labeling on their seafood products. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you if it's come whether it's farm raised or if it's wild caught capture, but if it's a product of United States, I can I will say that
0: it's gonna be a really good product for you in either case. And here's the thing I, I really like about this is Like, we clearly have a problem. Like, Mm -hmm. we're clearly, the math does not lie. We clearly know the national government in the United States is aware of this seafood problem. Mm -hmm. We're also very aware that there's tons of fishing ships out there still fishing and will fish as long as there's a demand. It's just the Mm -hmm. way it is, and we can't control that. Mm -hmm. However, um, I think as consumers or listeners on the podcast, one of the things that we're trying to do here is that awareness and that growth in, Mm -hmm. in being an entrepreneur And so being an entrepreneur is not a sole proprietor. That doesn't mean I go into a business and I just run my place. If I'm not growing and I'm not looking for growth, that's the definition of an entrepreneur to me. I can be a sole proprietor all day long, but if I'm not growing, growing society, trying to grow business for the better of other people, or, and I'm just a side hustle by myself, am I really an entrepreneur? My argument is not, Mm -hmm. especially since we're on this podcast, an entrepreneur is going out, he's improving the communities, growing businesses, he's growing people, it's a stronger term than we've given Mm -hmm. emphasis to. And so that being said, um, as leaders, what is it that leaders, and we lead by the decisions we make in the supermarket, Mm -hmm. just like an entrepreneur leads in the way I just said, So when we're in there, we need to be conscious of where a fish comes from, because whether we're seeing it or not, the legacy that we're building is a stronger China, Mm -hmm. or a stronger wherever the fish comes from, and the stronger they get in that fish market, and the stronger that business is, one, the less it's going to go away, but two the harder it's going to be for us to reverse it or build our own strong economy against it. Mm-hmm. And here's the other thing. There's plenty of countries in Africa in particular and and parts of Asia that lack water that need solutions like fish farms mm-hmm. to actually then help The other parts of their business which could be indoor growing of fruits and vegetables in an aquaponics form Mm -hmm. and so all these things what I like about what you're doing is it's literally a piece that meshes into whatever and Mm -hmm. allows everyone to still be entrepreneurial and then two is is Everyone, every country out there, and guess what? China's probably not listening to this podcast. I don't think they syndicate (laughs) in China, but I can probably, if they do. But here's the reality. All the other nations, like we talked about owning land and the importance of it Mm -hmm. for generations. It is an important thing no matter how your government's instructed to build that legacy for the environment. So if we're talking about being entrepreneurs and doing better, it's part of passing that on is how do we improve from generation to generation to generation. Mm -hmm. That's part of being an entrepreneur. The other part then is how do we encourage that behavior elsewhere in other yeah. countries so we're not alone in our adventure of becoming national security because everyone's like well why would we do it we'd want to buy more from other people but the reality is is we're all gonna we're all at a crisis here for food and when one country gets it all the reality is is if there's ever a crisis in seafood or we yeah. ever accidentally wipe out the earth's ocean mm. we have a shortage of protein yeah and so the direction we're going is that because you can't keep feeding more and more and more and more and then saying it's sustainable, which just means, by the way, keeping the status quo as it is now. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean replenishing. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of where on a bigger scale, I think as humans, we get so caught up in, in politics and 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 race, and and things, these are all, and I agree, they're all important, and and social values, and and politics, and COVID, all important values, right? But the most important one that actually could help solve all of them, in my opinion, is food, and is our food economy, Mm -hmm. and is us as entrepreneurs, you know, whether it's food, or whatever, maybe it's a different one, is realizing that we're all Equal And we all have a similar purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of us have the same opportunity, really, um, no matter where we are with what we have, to try to make a difference in farming and in food, and especially in seafood right now, which is why I love having one. Because to me, the rest of it, we're making the right strides. We've um, commercialized Mm -hmm. farming, for lack of a better term it's we're getting better at it but we're not getting the piece where there was also once a free cow so it's okay for there once to have been a free fish and they can still be free but we also need that inner integration we need to be realistic it's not just throwing one solution at Mm it it's we're a diverse world with a diverse system of nature that needs diverse solutions that's going to take multiple generations, like the farmers, and the farmers have already done, to your point, f- if they were the 1950s, we wouldn't be feeding a world population right now. Right. You know, in the way that we can now. And so it's the same thing.
1: Yeah, and I think too is, you know, to, to your previous point, that this such a diverse set of needs and yeah. things that need to happen. It comes from so many stakeholders. Yeah. And that, again, comes down to what you talked about is is the individual ownership, for people to make those sorts of judgment calls. I mean, pe- people that are living on that farm, they know what's best for that farm. Yeah. Um, it's the same idea of like, uh, if you're gonna take your child to a school, you know what's best for your child, yeah. right? That's, a, that's a, you know, it's not, you're not going to be able to raise the child your child the best uh based on a set of government mandates for example yeah, exactly. right um and you know what's best for your child you know what's best for you and sam- these farmers knows what's best for their piece of property and that's also why i think that you know to your point that it does come with uh, individual ownership uh, of those things and are there bad uh, eggs out there sure but you know there's uh i think a really good story and by and large <laughs> I would argue that uh, it's a lot of very good operators and very good uh, people and family farmers that care deeply uh, about the ground and the environment that's around them. So uh, I'm, I'm so glad that you're out here telling that story and, uh, and being part of that narrative as far as how we reach our goals and how we move forward as a society with a focus on, on food and agriculture sustainability i'm not going to look at the word sustainability the same anymore after you said that that, uh, that's just maintaining status quo but also how do we not only maintain status quo but add back to the environment add back to the oceans and add back to our uh, familial uh, uh you know grounds in in iowa and, and how we we grow our communities and and everything in between so very excited that you're talking about all of that yeah,
0: and i think we can be a first generation that actually replenishes the earth mm-hmm. versus taking away from and i think it's no fault to anyone's it's just been the way it is but we've sort of intellectually superiored ourselves for lack of a better term in that we have a greater understanding we have more access to information at a, higher to make these decisions but we often think it's an easy solution and it's just not it's really a complex solution that it's going to involve every human and um and and really to the point if we wanted if you had if you knew a meteor was going to hit the earth 400 years from now Mm -hmm. you know um what would you do now? Yeah, it's a really take a different question. approach. Yeah. You know, and your legacy and your kids, I mean, it's not directly going to impact you, but it's going to impact Earth or your mm-hmm. generation. You know, I think that if we look at things that way, that if the decisions we're making now and how we handle buying or seafood or food national security or food in general, now is that 400-year meteor coming at us 400 years from now? Mm-hmm. Because one is... In my belief, truly, it helps the environment. Mm -hmm. We start fixing this environmental problem. We start getting smarter because when you're a farmer and you're in food and multiple countries are in food skirt, you're starting to place your food near your your stuff near your foodstuffs or your supplies or whatever. And you're starting to get smaller Mm -hmm. in your footprint, but you're able to get larger in your business and your offering and your diversity. Yeah. And that's where we're seeing people often think, oh, I'm getting smaller. Or I'm thinking smaller because I'm just going to concentrate on right here in Iowa. That's not really what happens. If you they become really good at and diversify, like I said, we're seeing, you said, or I said, you're seeing people go down to Peru and Brazil mm-hmm. and have big impact there and mm-hmm. partnerships. And so that's the exporting of knowledge where we're they're making an impact at a local farmer. And in Brazil, mm-hmm. the locals have to own 51%. Right. Because of the way their government's structured, fifty-one um, percent of all business have to be nationally owned, or all businesses have to be one fifty-one percent Brazilian owned to function in business in Brazil. Mm-hmm. But so there's that as well. So your import knowledge, it's benefiting, but we're making a difference, which is you know a country like that, Everyone's worried about the rainforest and and CO two, but as some of this has gone on, we're now seeing. There's a way to make them both happen. How do you protect the uh, environment and the rainforest and integrate the farms? What can we grow in the rainforest that doesn't normally, you know, uh, wouldn't grow anywhere else, but can grow in a protected. They've made big strides in that capacity, by the way. And you know,
1: not all of Brazil is rainforest. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, There's, uh, in fact, um, you know, one of our community members, uh, someone that I've known for a lot of my life and has been a friend of the family. Uh, is down there and and farms uh, and does actually corn ethanol. Um, And, you know, he's talked about how, you know, some of the soil quality uh, is even better than, in some cases, uh, than what we have in Iowa. And uh, they haven't seen really any uh, soil derogation in in the soil quality and the soil health. Um, And then also, you know, they're not having to slash and burn, you know, for that prop, for that ground. It is in production and they're just optimizing it. So um, it's not like they're, you know, they're not tearing down the rainforests like maybe they did uh, in years prior, but, uh, you know, they've they've done a lot for modernization. You know, they've gotten a little more political stability down there. Absolutely. And as a result, you know, there's been a lot of people that have been a big part of the development down there and including our family friend and including a lot of other people from Iowa. Um, So, you know, there's a good story about how, you know, it's uh, not this doom and gloom You know, the byproduct of agriculture. Well, I'd call it the byproduct of a growing population. You know, we're just trying to make sure people don't, you know, starve to death. And, uh, but they've got, we've gotten so much better and we're continuing to get better by our science based approach on how do we, uh, you know, have the smallest impact on the environment while also providing the nutrition and the products that people need to survive. Yeah.
0: And I think exactly that point is, um, If we go back to the 400 year meteor, all of a sudden the whole world's together doing one thing. Mm -hmm. And if we look at it that way and we want to replenish and we want to make the difference that you're talking about or layer that in, you know, we have to, um, I got myself sidetracked now, but we have to really, you know, make an effort to Mm -hmm. do those things and understand that farming is probably the most essential thing. Um, regardless of whether or not we're directly involved um, whether we're in per- entrepreneurs and helping it or we're making sure we buy local farming or yeah. united states farming or if it is in the united states that we're checking what that country's um stands for their land their replenishment of the environment these are all decisions we make more decisions on food than anything else it has the greatest impact across the board like i said when it comes to you know fighting racism or equality or whatever food is the way to do it. it's the most common thing it's the way that's deliberate it's where all the opportunity is we need more farmers uh we're starting to see we were talking about women in in farming but we're also seeing in the united states diversity in ethnicities and Mm -hmm. and different cultures starting to come in the united states whether they're immigrating or their parent people that were urban um dwellers forever for lack of a better term and now are farmers going out to the farms Mm -hmm. and so i think that's very interesting as well and i'll add some interesting perspective they won't have the layering of generations per se um but it is good to see that people are still committed to doing it Mm -hmm. um and sort of still committed to do that and you know i touch on some pretty hard points but my point being is that we all need to eat at the end of the day no matter what goes on and what we believe, the most important thing is for us as humans to survive and mm. to keep building better planet or replenishing it. Or, you know, maybe if we're sci fi it's to make sure that we do good enough here so in case we have to do it good enough somewhere else or we're yeah. able to figure out how to go somewhere else ultimately 400 years but we've got to be able to do it sustainably here first if we're going to go be able to do it sustainably somewhere else so i'm a crazy person and i I would
1: agree to that with a point the point being that we are so far ahead of a lot of other economies so even where we're at today sharing of that knowledge even though we're not at the end goal yet right sharing where we're at is uh, hugely beneficial to economies and communities across the world.
0: And I think Iowa has become quite a place for, I mean, it's sort of, the it's, international mar- world sort yeah, of comes there quite a bit now. I, I would say
1: it's it's the the I'd say the center of the world when it comes to commoditized ag. Yeah. Uh, we're actually uh, we're number two in uh, commodity ag sales behind California. Com- California being a much much larger state. Yeah. Um, you know uh, I feel, believe uh, Iowa actually has a pretty unique place in uh, in in international politics as well. Yeah. Uh, back in the 1980s, uh, a delegation from uh, China actually came to Iowa and uh, that uh, came to look at uh, modern agriculture and see how they can implement that. Uh, one of the uh, region leaders was uh, Xi Jinping, and he actually uh, developed a relationship with our then Iowa governor. He stayed on the Kimberley Farm uh, and uh, there in Iowa, and they actually recreated that farm in China um and uh, as a show of what modern agriculture is going to look like and so you know we've been uh, very fortunate that we've got people that are very good at uh, what they do uh, in the ag world and uh, it's been just incredible to be a part of that a community and then taking what they've what the lessons that they've learned in those areas and applying them now to a new market that is
0: fish farming i think it's really cool that um That we're starting to see then and i think it's really cool that we're starting to see that hey farm and and land-based animals or land-based plants for that matter also yeah it's not the only route we can actually build into our farms and and preserve the land and and like i said add into that replenishing i think so joe as we're wrapping up here i think is there anything you want to add or, or let anyone know as we sort of wrap it up? I yeah. apologize in the audience. There's probably a part where you, I'm off in a distance. My mic died for like <laughs> three minutes. Yeah. Well, um, I just, uh,
1: like I probably alluded to earlier in the podcast, uh, just highly encourage everybody to look up Norman Borlaug and get to know that name because I think he's probably one of the most important people that's not talked about. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then also... Um, you know, feel free next week is the, during the Iowa state fair. So if you've never been to the state Iowa state fair, it's the largest state fair in the country. Uh, some folks in Texas and Minnesota, uh, will disagree with me on that, but, uh, we're very proud of our Iowa state fair. And I hope that you can come to our state fair at some point and come see the, uh, and the live stream that, uh, century farm. Uh, we'll uh, be sure to drop the link maybe uh okay, yeah i'll and, put in the an
0: episode
1: and uh and so it's going to be really cool events going on next week i don't know the day off the top of my head but i'll be sure to follow up with that
0: and um as we go one last thing so if there's farmers out there that are interested mm-hmm. in working with you at eagles yeah. catch and, and sort of exploring this fish farming as a, a natural which makes complete sense to me a natural way to to Add revenue to your farm, add fertilizer, preserve water. Um, yeah. How do they go about it? How do they reach out to you guys? What's yeah. that process look like?
1: Feel free to reach out on our website. We've uh, on a contact us uh, page. Uh, you can reach us at eagles catch.com. And the eagles is plural catch like you catch a ball, dash in between.com. And uh, go to contact us and drop me a note. Feel free to reach out and uh, look forward to hearing from you. And uh, I'll see if there's anything I can do to help you if, if uh, you're interested in fish
0: farming. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Joe. And I appreciate everyone in the audience and listening. And thank you guys for constantly sharing the podcast. Um, obviously, this one was packed full of punches. I'm sure I'll get some, some emails and some texts about some <laughs> of my comments throughout it. Um, I'm obviously not trying to diminish anything i'm just trying to merely say that if we all united around food it would be a common cause yeah i agree with that um that everyone could back so absolutely thank you again and thank you everyone for listening in thanks everyone